Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest on the show is Alice Zhang. Now let's start with some basic background. Zhang studied systems biology at Princeton, graduated with honors, enrolled in an MD-PhD program at UCLA Caltech, stayed there five years, quit, moved to Silicon Valley, co-founded a company dedicated to using her knowledge for neurodegenerative drug discovery. She has been named among the Forbes 30 under 30. In short, she's smart and young. Now that's nice, but what makes her more interesting to me as a guest for this show is her thoughtful approach to combining genomic data with artificial intelligence to improve drug discovery for complex multifactorial diseases, specifically the neurodegenerative kind. There are people out there thumping the tub and drinking the AI Kool-Aid, but I think Zhang has a pretty wise sense for what AI can and can't do in drug discovery. I learned a few things listening to her, and I think you will too. Now, before we get going, this episode is brought to you by Executive Education at Harvard Medical School. For more than 200 years, Harvard Medical School has shaped the design of medical school education throughout the world. Now, HMS is bringing its expertise to organizations that seek to drive growth and innovation in healthcare. Harvard Medical School designs and delivers customized executive level programs that provide business and science leaders with a fundamental understanding of current medical practices, the changing economic landscape of healthcare, and the latest advances in biomedical science. Companies like Google, Amgen, GE, and Athena Health are already leveraging new customer insights gained through their coursework at Harvard Medical School. Programs include first-hand insights into physician decision-making, patient perspectives, real-world workflows, and the business of medicine, advances in technology, biomedical science, and patient care that may present new opportunities for your company, discussions on trends in patient-centered care, data science, genomics, digital health, policy, and reimbursement, and exploration of -of state-of-the-art treatments for specific diseases. For a free consultation on how your organization can gain new customer insights with Harvard Medical School, the Long Run Podcast listeners can go to a special place. Go to hms.harvard.edu slash longrunexec, all one word. I'll say that again. For a free consultation on how your organization can gain insights from Harvard Medical School, go to hms.harvard.edu slash longrunexec, all one word. Now, just about everyone in the cancer R&D business is thinking about combination therapy and complementary mechanisms of action. Not only do drug developers today need to see proof of their biological mechanism as a monotherapy, but also in combination with other treatments that are fast emerging on the scene. This gets complicated in a hurry, especially when you think about all the possible mechanisms, dose regimens, and tumor types that need to be taken into account. Companies today often have to burn through 30 to 50 patients in a phase one clinical trial to get the answer to these important questions. That takes a lot of precious time and money. Presage Biosciences is working to improve this approach. They are now working with biopharma companies to use Presage's patented microinjector device that enables intratumoral microdosing of experimental cancer drugs. 
This microdosing tool can allow for a half dozen or more combinations of drugs to be injected directly into a single tumor while the tumor is still in the mouse or in the patient. This is a way to run multiple experiments at once to get maximum information bang to guide drug development on time and on budget. The device is being used in a clinical trial right now. To learn more, go to presagebio.com. Next on the long run, Ethan Perlstein. He's outspoken on social media, unafraid to rattle cages with the industry powers that be. He's followed an unusual entrepreneurial path, starting a public benefit company, raising money from non-traditional sources, embracing radical transparency, building an unusual model organism-based platform for drug discovery, and using his internet savvy to mobilize partners to help him come up with treatments for rare diseases. This is a guy who questions basic assumptions about the world and isn't afraid to roll the dice and do things differently. I think you'll enjoy hearing his thought process. Now, join me and Alice Zhang for the long run. So today I'm speaking with uh, Alice Zhang. She's the co-founder and CEO of Verge Genomics in San Francisco, uh, one of the companies out there on the forefront trying to apply uh, advances in genome sequencing along with artificial intelligence for drug discovery. Welcome, Alice, and thanks for being on the long run. Thanks for having me. So, um, Alice, you, I don't know if you've heard many of these shows, but uh, I often like to start out with uh, a, some basic biographical information on uh, the speaker. So, um, where uh, where did you come from? What did your mom and dad do? Uh, so I was born in the D.C. area. I grew up in northern Virginia, just outside the NIH. Um, my mom was a software engineer, um, and my dad uh, began originally as an engineer at NASA, but eventually quit to become a self-employed day trader for the last uh, two decades or so. Um, and they were both immigrants from China right after the Cultural Revolution. Uh, my dad actually came here as a political refugee um, after uh, he was an activist in China for, for the Democracy Wall movement. Wow. Um, so you've got some scientific and entrepreneurial pedigree and, and some, uh, some political activism, too. That's quite a bit. Yeah, 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 it's uh, quite a bit to live up to. So um, how did you get interested in science? So I uh, originally, when I went back in high school, I actually went to a science and tech uh, nerd school, as you might call it, called Thomas Jefferson. And uh, uh, I actually first started getting into medicine, uh, actually originally through human rights. So as you could imagine, I started first started becoming quite curious about human rights in China through some of my dad's uh, my dad's background. And actually, my first uh, foray into human rights was actually when I went back to China and I volunteered at uh, an NGO um, that was helping uh, victims of a uh, kind of massive AIDS epidemic that has really come to light over the last uh, five years. And that was when I first started seeing really what the devastating outcomes of not having medical care uh, could have uh, firsthand for patients in need. And that's when I first started 
realizing the profound impact that uh, medical innovation could have, um, I think, in terms globally, in terms of uh, thousands of patients and uh, eventually millions of patients. So that's when I first started becoming interested in medicine. But I soon kind of quickly realized that while medicine um, was very fulfilling, um, is very fulfilling to work with patients and their family, ultimately to get to the impact um, uh, I wanted to have, which was ultimately on potentially millions of patients, that um, really that had to occur through uh, scientific and R&D innovation. And so I actually ended up doing a, an MD-PhD uh, program at UCLA and uh, Caltech. And that's when I first uh, started falling in love with computational biology. Well, so you were sort of thinking about my doctor. Uh, I thought that was <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, for a long time, I actually did not want to be a doctor because uh, my parents wanted me to. So like most children, I grew up resisting that and I wanted to be an astronomer. Um, uh, but uh, I think I couldn't help but uh, feel the, the pull and attraction over time. And so ended up um, doing what I began not wanting to do. So you got into one of these MD-PhD combined programs at UCLA Caltech? Yes, correct. And was this, um, how, how old were you then? That was uh, right after college, so around when I was 21. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And then was it later that you did the Lewis Sigler Fellowship Program at Princeton? Oh, so I, I went to undergrad at Princeton, and that's when I first started working in uh, computational biology research. That was at the Lewis Sigler Institute. Um, okay. under um, an investigator named Saeed Tabazoe. And uh, that was actually in the oncology space uh, where I first started becoming fascinated by how hundreds of genes interacted in these uh, network-like structures. And when I went to grad school, I realized that the same could be done for neuroscience, but neuroscience was unfortunately about a decade uh, time behind in terms of innovation on the big data and uh, machine learning uh, front than, than oncology was. So, okay, so your, your undergrad time, you're getting exposed to systems biology there at Princeton and, you know, uh, you, I, I mean, you are probably the youngest person to appear on this show. So, but this is this is like when uh, you're going through college during uh, this exciting time in genomics. The human genome has now been sequenced, right, in the early aughts. Yes, exactly. So I, I actually remember specifically the moment I really fell in love with this concept of systems biology, which was at the National Cancer Institute. It was actually during a, one of the summer research internships I did. And back then I was actually working on, you know, the very classical type of research project where I was studying the effect of what one specific protein. I would knock it out. I do a bunch of Western blots. I look at cell proliferation. And I remember there was a physicist in the lab who one day during lab meeting, he showed this beautiful diagram of these hundreds of genes that were all involved in this particular type of brain cancer. And I just remember thinking that made so much intuitive sense that these diseases would actually be caused by the interactions between hundreds of genes that I actually knocked on his door immediately after the lab meeting and I asked him, how can I start getting involved in this type of research? And uh, hilariously, he told me to look up uh, the programming language Python <laughs> and, uh, and then he immediately gave me a project and he said, good luck. And I went on Google, I Googled what is Python, and that's how I started uh, teaching myself how to code and how to start doing bioinformatics. So, uh, 
yeah, this is the idea that uh, one gene, one protein, I mean, that was a really interesting way to kind of plug away in the early days of molecular biology, understand how what genes do, basic functions. But as we know, I mean, these are systems and they're complicating and you perturb a system and, and a whole cascade of reactions uh, occurs. Um, and this sounds like this is what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. I think I think what um, was uh, great about the molecular, the previous molecular biology revolution was that it really gave us the tools to really probe mechanistically the effects of perturbing one gene at a time uh, on another gene. And so that led to a lot of the, the major biotech companies now, such as Amgen, Genentech. But what was really exciting for me was almost the, the modern equivalent of that revolution, which was the genomic revolution. And that made a lot more sense to me that we need to probe the entire landscape of the entire genome every time we do a perturbation. Because in reality, the, the more complex diseases, the ones that have been less well tackled by, by current tools, such as neurodegeneration, Alzheimer's disease, ALS and Parkinson's, aren't as simple as a one gene, one protein disease. Yeah, there's, there's a lot going on there, including environmental inputs. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, for me, uh, I, I had uh, got really good advice actually from one of my mentors at Princeton. Uh, which was, you know, a lot of people, I think, put a lot of stock in going down a certain pathway and needing to commit to that path uh, uh, despite uh, and feeling this kind of sunk cost fallacy. But I remember he told me, you know, there's no way to actually know if you want to be a doctor or know if you want to be in academia without actually going down that path and doing the MD or the PhD. So a lot of it was very much a journey of really learning uh, what I liked about the medical field and what I liked about academia and how um, could I actually best execute on my ultimate mission, which was to be able to use scientific innovation to impact as many patient lives as possible. Now, did you think entrepreneurship was going to be the avenue for that impact uh, early on, or, or did you come to that later? Yeah, I never thought that I would ever in a million years start a, a company. I think uh, going into the MD-PhD, I very much had, I would say even back then, I would say with an 80% certainty that I would pursue this very standard physician scientist path, which would be 80% research, 20% clinical time. I'd be running my own lab, um, be publishing papers. Um, but I think what I found was that um, a lot of the academic side was very focused really only on publication, and there are very few labs that are truly translational. And conversely, on the medical side, it was very focused on, on uh, kind of seeing one patient at a time rather than uh, breaking through new scientific innovations. So it's pretty, uh, it was very unexpected for me that actually starting a company would most directly fulfill my uh, motivation for doing the MD-PhD in the first place better than either the MD or the PhD path. So when did you graduate? So I never ended up uh, graduating. So I did two years of medical school and I did three years of my uh, PhD when I left to start the company. Wow, that's a pretty bold decision. Um, how, did you, how did you come to that? 
Yeah, I think it was, I mean, honestly, it was a confluence of factors. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, the first was that I went into the program really with this, I think my goal for the end of my life has always been to be able to reflect back and to be able to know that I've impacted as many patient lives as possible to the greatest degree. Um, so when I went into medical school, I found that it was, again, very fulfilling to see patients one at a time, but ultimately there wasn't the the potential upside to really impact people on the, the degree of the millions of people. And then when I went into the PhD, I found it very focused on, on publishing um, and on studying individual mechanisms rather than pushing, for example, a product to patients. And so specifically, when I started doing my PhD, my PhD was focused on using uh, machine learning and computational biology to find new drugs for nerve regeneration. And we had identified a new uh, drug candidate that we showed had not only in vitro, but also in vivo efficacy. So it could rescue a function in mice with uh, crushed peripheral nerves about four times faster than the leading standard. And we had discovered that really in the course of months rather than years. So there was really one moment, it'd be probably when I was writing up this manuscript. And I, I kind of had this moment where I realized, you know, I could publish this and it could sit on a bookshelf somewhere. Or I could be uh, the person that pushes that this technology out of the lab to actually create a product for patients. And if I wasn't going to do it, then there actually was very few people in the world that had the expertise to do so. Um, so that's when we applied to Y Combinator and we ended up getting in and uh, that was in summer of 2015. So we packed up and went to Mountain View. And when you say we, um, who who is this uh, including besides you? So this is me and my co-founder, Jason, who is also a fellow MD, PhD classmate at UCLA and uh, one of my best friends to this day. So you did have a partner, which always helps. Um but, uh, you know, you're in your 20s. Um, I don't think you had a most people there in academia don't have a great Rolodex of VCs that they can just, you know, walk into Kleiner Perkins and, you know, come out with 30 million bucks. So yeah. <laughs> um, that, that took a lot of gumption. <laughs> what, what was going through your mind? Um, well, I think that, yeah, we certainly didn't have the traditional biotech founding story. Um, for me, this is very uh, much a company that's driven out of a passion for really bringing to bear systems biology into real products for patients in a very real and meaningful way and um, uh, really wanting to be the one that pushes that forward. So I think we, we were able to secure venture funding. Um, through through our uh, at the end of Y Combinator through a number of venture capital funds um, that I think saw a lot of promise of uh, a new age in which technology can really increase efficiencies of um, uh, in the healthcare industry. Okay, well we'll get there. But tell me about this Y Combinator experience. What what did you really learn there? Yeah, I mean, so it's certainly also not a traditional uh, biotech incubator. So YC or Y Combinator, YC as they call it uh, for short, uh, has its groundings in traditional technology companies. So I think the most famous companies that came out of there were Airbnb, 
Dropbox uh, Reddit. Um, but uh, beginning around 2012, um, Sam Altman, the president, started taking a more heavy um, interest into expanding um, uh, Y Combinator's uh, reach into what they call hard tech companies. So hardware companies, agriculture, biotech was one of the big areas. Um, and so uh, now they have dozens of different biotech companies, but specifically they have an interest in biotech where technology can actually have a meaningful role in shortening the cycle of uh, development of whether or not it's therapeutics, diagnostics, or other products. Okay, so what kind of technology, I mean, I guess uh, with what you're trying to do at Verge, um, what do you need in terms of technology tools? Yeah, so all of our, um, um, so at Verge, actually, over the last two years, we've built um, uh, what is relatively unique in the AI therapeutic space, which is actually a fully integrated um, AI therapeutics company. So what I mean by that is we have not just the front end of the machine learning platform and the computational team and all of the data and algorithms, but we also have our own in-house labs and drug discovery facilities. So we have our own stem cell facilities, our own animal vivariums, and that has enabled us to really create products from the data all the way from just the, the concept through to a preclinical IND package. Um, and that for us has been a really meaningful driver of progress. Why is the combination of the wet lab and the computer, you know, data, uh, What's special about that combination, having them side by side? Yeah, I think the the uh, importance is twofold. I think the first most broad implication is that I am a big believer that for every AI company in the therapeutics or biology space, it is irrelevant how sophisticated your AI algorithms are if you don't have sufficient data to train or learn from. And that data for us comes in two parts. The first is uh, actual patient data. So we've, uh, when we first began, we were looking at a lot of public data and we found them to be quite underwhelming and underpowered. So we actually made the shift into generating our own in-house uh, proprietary data sets. So we actually source um, thousands of different patient brain samples and we RNA sequence them internally to generate an initial data set. And importantly, for every single prediction that comes out of the algorithms, we immediately actually test them um, in the labs themselves. And we collect a large amount of validation data that actually feeds back in and retrains the algorithms. So it's incredibly important, we found, to actually close this feedback loop from the computational side to the biology side. Otherwise, you just have these machine learning algorithms that operate in a black box and there's no real way to validate them or to improve them. What was really lacking in the public data sets that you looked at in the beginning? Yeah, so I think a lot of the public data sets, the ones that are published right now, especially at the transcriptomic level, 
are usually produced, I think, from one-off publications or academic labs where they're doing, for example, a 12 versus 12 comparison of uh, uh, disease versus control patients. And while that is sufficient for a publication, what it's not sufficient for is actually running real machine learning algorithms to find reproducible and robust uh, targets or even gene signatures. So I think what, uh, in retrospect, what was missing from a lot of those data sets were actually having the computational analysis folks sitting with the experimentalist to actually design the experiment so that we know it's sufficiently well-powered, that it's the right type of data, and that we can actually extract meaningful uh, results from that data instead of just having um, a data set that's generated for the sake of uh, generate data generation. It, it sounds a little bit like the classic garbage in, garbage out kind of problem. Is that one way to think of it? Yeah, that is one way to think of it. But I think also another way to think of it is that we, we have certainly found that one of the biggest barriers to actually fully realizing the potential of AI in drug discovery has been these silos that exist between compu the computational side and the biology side. So oftentimes when these data sets are generated, they're oftentimes generated without even uh, an idea of how they're going to analyze it downstream. And it's the analysis is almost an afterthought. So once the data set is generated, oftentimes it's the biggest problem is it's not sufficiently powered. There aren't even enough samples to be able to make a conclusion. But also they're oftentimes very noisy. They're not controlled for the right types of confounders. So you are sourcing these brain samples. Um, that probably doing. Uh, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, we both collaborate. We collaborate with a number of brain banks, academic labs, universities, and hospitals to be able to source this tissue. And then when you do the RNA sequencing, that is specifically calibrated to the questions that, that you want to be able to, to answer downstream. Your computational folks have had some input that they, you know, into what's coming in. Exactly. So we, we take the right, uh, we ensure that we have the right number of samples. And importantly, we also have neurobiologists and with a deep domain expertise uh, of the disease areas to be able to, uh, to select, for example, the right tissue source, the cell type, the patient samples, the demographics. And we found that actually by incorporating um, some of that biological or disease domain expertise from day one, we actually need to collect fewer data points because we can be more targeted about what we're actually extracting signal from. Presage Biosciences has a microinjector device that enables intratumoral microdosing of experimental cancer drugs. Why does this matter? It enables researchers to evaluate several drugs at once against a single tumor while the tumor is still in the mouse or in the patient. You can test multiple combinations in a single experiment, helping keep your drug development plan on time and on budget. This device is being used in clinical trials now. To learn more, go to presagebio.com. And Harvard Medical School designs and develops customized executive level programs that provide business and science leaders with a fundamental understanding of current medical practices, the changing economic landscape of healthcare, and the latest advances in biomedical science. Companies like Google, Amgen, GE, and Athena Health are already leveraging new customer insights gained through their coursework at Harvard Medical School. Okay, now grab your pencil. 
for a free consultation on how your organization can gain new customer insights with Harvard Medical School, long run podcast listeners can go to a special place. Point your web browser to hms.harvard.edu slash longrunexec, all one word. Go there and get a free consultation to see how your organization can benefit from the courses at Harvard Medical School. Now, coming back to a little bit of the business, um, you said you raised some venture capital. Um, how much? Uh, we have raised, um, we've disclosed $4 million to date. $4 million. That's mm-hmm. not a, a huge amount. Um, you've got, uh, but you've got a team of something like 20 people? Uh, 14 people full-time. And uh, one thing I have noticed, I mean, this last, say, six months in particular, you've done a number of partnerships. Uh, can you... Uh, walk our listeners through those partnerships and why they're important to you? Yeah, so we actually announced several data partnerships in uh, 2017 in the earlier part of this year. So halfway through 2017, we first announced that we were leading um, a an ALS consortium to generate uh, data uh, in tandem with Massachusetts General Hospital, uh, with USC, and a number of universities. Um, so we were profiling both patient IPSCs as well as uh, patient uh, spinal cord samples. And we repeated the same uh, project in Parkinson's disease uh, shortly thereafter, a few months later, with uh, Dresden University, Scripps, and the NIH. Um, And then subsequent to that, we also have recently announced a partnership with Genomics England, um, who is sequencing 100,000 patient genomes. um, And that's uh, a company funded by the UK uh, National Health Service. And so all of these partnerships are important because they enable us to really do what we can't do alone um, um, by working with academic labs, universities, and hospitals to be able to access not only large numbers of patient samples, but also unique patient uh, uh, data types. So something we're doing right now is a single nuclei sequencing uh, of uh, thousands of different cells from a single patient brain, so multiple across multiple patients. And it's actually the first time we can start to resolve cell type specific differences in disease tissue. So um, you're, um, now are, are these bringing revenue to you or, or what do you hope to uh, come away with from these partnerships? So ultimately, the uh, for any machine learning company, data is the the currency uh, right now for for uh, for any AI driven drug discovery companies. So for us, it offers a couple of things. First of all, between all of the data we've generated and collected in ALS and Parkinson's disease, we've now built one of the world's only uh, one of the world's largest known transcriptomic data sets across ALS and Parkinson's patients. So this is a very rich data set that enables us to mine real human data from day one to actually identify the groups of genes or gene signatures that are causing disease. And that forms the basis of our subsequent uh, drug discovery and development programs where we use these signatures then to identify novel targets and then to develop uh, small molecule entities against those targets. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, I think uh, one time I saw you last fall at a conference, you were making reference to um, this discovery platform 
uh, actually leading to uh, your team discovering a new novel target for Parkinson's disease. And I think you've since published that in the literature. Is that right? Yeah, so it was actually in ALS, uh, amyotrophic oh, ALS. lateral sclerosis. Um, so it was with um, some fantastic collaborators we had at uh, University of Southern California, Harvard, and a number of universities, where together we were able to identify a novel mechanism of action in uh, involving the endolysosomal trafficking pathway that was uh, disrupted in ALS patients. So we find that there's a loss of function of members of this pathway when we look at real ALS p tissue. And what was quite interesting is that this was a mechanism that we had identified when we actually looked at the, the signature itself. So when we profiled um, hundreds of different patient spinal cords from ALS patient tissue, we had independently identified this group of uh, 200 some genes that were consistently downregulated across all of these patients and enriched for genetic uh, causes of disease. And when we looked at one of the top functional enrichments in this pathway, we noticed that many of these genes were actually related to the endolysosomal trafficking pathway. And that's uh, when we actually looked in these cells, we noticed that um, these, these uh, proteins were misaggregated um, and that we could identify therapeutic agents that could restore uh, neurodegeneration by restoring this loss of function of um, endolysosomal trafficking. Okay, so it's a story that sounds like really complicated. There's 200 genes, uh, and I think a, a traditional pharmaceutical company might look at that and throw up their hands and say, you can't make a drug to inhibit 200 targets. Um, but you, there's actually like a, a pathway there further downstream that, that you can drug. Yeah, I think what has been quite interesting is that when we look at these 200-some genes, we find that they represent several different disparate mechanisms that have been independently studied by ALS researchers for quite some time, and this is independently derived. But it's the first time that we have a model that parsimoniously unifies multiple uh, disparate mechanisms. And so our worldview is that, you know, one major bottleneck in a lot of the way we think about drug discovery in these complex diseases is that oftentimes you'll have one researcher that's studying one mechanism in one corner of the field, and then you'll have another researcher that's really focused on another mechanism. And while both are important, um, the real way to actually get at a, a holistic understanding of the disease and importantly, disease modifying therapies is to really take a systems view of what What's happening in disease. So how do these mechanisms actually interact and feed back off each other? And how can we use that information to actually create a therapeutic that can reverse in tandem uh, multiple mechanisms at once? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So um, is, this, uh, is this the kind of thing that you can embark now on like a real drug development program, uh, raise some money, maybe get a pharma partner and, uh, you know, do the whole hit to lead, lead optimization, all that stuff? Yeah, I think what has been most exciting and what has been a, a real important enabling technology for actually doing real bona fide drug development um, using this technology is just the precipitous decline in the cost of sequencing technology. So I remember when, even when I was still a grad student, it would cost typically $800 per sample to uh, sequence the entire transcriptome. Um, now we're doing it for $20 per sample. 
And so once you, you have um, costs that are starting to get that low, we can start thinking about how do we actually use this as a readout for driving chemistry, uh, where in the phenotype, instead of being just a classical biochemical readout or a cellular readout or even a, a mouse behavioral readout, is actually a gene expression readout that is originally derived from the source tissue of patients that actually had the disease. And you're you're not just looking at the genes. This is, these are downstream products that you know your drug would bind with. Exactly. So we really view the the RNA as a dynamic readout of dysregulated uh, mechanisms that are ongoing in the patient tissue. But importantly, we don't just look at one type of data. In fact, we found that looking at one type of data on its own has not been particularly um, informative. What we do is we look across multiple stacks of data, so anywhere from the DNA to the RNA, to the protein, to see what is actually the convergent signal that is cross-validated across these data types. And we find that that's typically where the smoking gun of disease mechanism typically lies. Okay, so I mean, this sounds like what um, AI is supposed to be good at, looking at large amounts of data and detecting patterns. Um, sometimes people do that. They're, they're intuitively good at it. Um, they have hunches, <laughs> but where do you really see like this going longer term? Do you see this like throwing off like lots and lots of hypotheses for drug discovery? Yeah. So for us, our primary focus is to be focused and to actually uh, be able to push a product into a real inflection point, which is human uh, proof of concept, of course. And so I think that is uh, for any technology, the more quickly you can get it to a human proof of concept, the more important it is to actually use that to, to de-risk and unlock the value of the technology across every other disease. And so that's why we've taken a particularly focused approach by only working in neurodegeneration to begin and establishing a lead program in ALS from the very beginning um, that we are we're pushing um, to, to clinic in the next uh, two to three years. Um, I do think eventually I would love to actually scale this platform beyond just neurodegeneration into neuropsychiatric disorders, uh, general CNS, and eventually even other complex disorders outside of the CNS. Um, but uh, you can tell in the way we've built our company, we're really focused on producing therapeutics uh, with, with the AI and the technologies enabling technologies rather than just the core product of the company. Do, do you have uh, chemistry? capabilities in the company? Did you synthesize this compound like in-house? So we are building chemistry capabilities this year. Um, we're actually hiring right now for a head of chemistry, um, and we will likely collaborate with a CRO to do the actual synthesis of the analogs, but that is um, uh, on our roadmap for this year. Okay, so this ALS uh, lead program, you, you license that in from somewhere else? So the, the hit, hit compounds we have are publicly available compounds that we've um, identified and predicted from the platform. We then tested both in vitro and in vivo and identified activity um, in ALS. Oh, okay. Okay. So these are like generic compounds? Uh, yeah, they're tool compounds. So they're either compounds available from commercially available libraries or they're existing compounds in development for other indications. I see. Okay. Yeah. So... 
coming back to this AI piece, I mean, you know, I mean, there's a lot of people talking about this <laughs> uh, mm. in all, all kinds of aspects of society, but in drug development in particular, I know at the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference, there was just a lot of um, hype, you could say. Uh, there's a lot of skepticism in traditional drug development about, you know, how big or how quickly uh, the impact of AI for drug discovery might be. What's your view, I guess, of the, you know, this enabling technology? I would say a tempered optimism. Um, I agree that I think with any technology, you definitely do see these waves. I think there's a wave, first waves in genomics, right? And I think similarly, there are always um, these waves of a lot of excitement. I do think in uh, most of those cases, however, there are companies that emerge um, from those ways with real meaningful traction and real progress that is grounded in science. Um, so how how I really think about AI is that I think it's right now hard to have a real AI company that is just AI, that is just the machine learning platform aspect. Um, for all of the reasons we talked about before, um, the biggest of which is that there's no way to actually test if your predictions are correct um, and to feed, back in, back, feed that back into your AI algorithms if you don't have the biology labs. And I think equally as important is uh, from day one, having the computer scientists sit next to the end users, which are the drug developers, the neurobiologists, to actually deeply understand what are their core problems? What should the product look like? Um, rather than just tackling kind of obscure um, AI questions or problems. So there's a real practicality in the way we design our algorithms because ultimately um, our goal is to get to an IND uh, in the next couple of years. And so I think um, I have high hopes for companies that are use AI as an enabling technology but still remain grounded in the science who can take on uh, people with real biological domain expertise to work with those computer scientists to, to uh, create real meaningful traction. Well, and I wonder too, if the, um, the underlying sequence technology, which you mentioned earlier, may even be more important um, in terms of, I mean, your company's called Verge Genomics, not Verge AI, <laughs> for one. <laughs> um, but, but um, you know, you are getting the transcriptome um, for a very low price and able to, um, you know, take really um, relevant samples and query, uh, get a lot, of, a lot of information there that, you know, can feed into, like that's the raw substrate, right, that goes into the algorithms. Mm -hmm. um, equally, if not more, more important. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of, I mean, AI in general is a very overloaded term and it's really grown to take on a huge, uh, uh, broad meaning across a number of different companies in the sector. So I think there are, is real space. And I think there are a number of companies in the space that are really focused on driving down just the hardware component of sequencing, driving down the cost, working on barcoding, for instance, um, CROs for the sequencing itself. Um, and it's a really exciting space. And that actually is very important in enabling for then companies downstream like us to actually generate that data and then create the therapeutic product. Um, so I think uh, it's a very exciting space. I think the area of the I'd be most curious to watch is actually, you know, what what are the types of companies that come out, use this AI technology and what do they actually make with it? So um, I think to date, there have been a lot of service companies that have arisen out of uh, like people that do computational 
services that help pharma companies provide services on lead optimization or chemistry around known targets. Um, but I think there will be this new wave of company that realizes that a lot of the value is actually in the product that comes out of the, the computational software and the technology. And I think um, I would keep an eye on the space of, you know, what are the, the companies that are starting to look more like therapeutics companies that simply on the on the back end are using AI technologies instead of uh, just typical high throughput screens or phenotypic screens. Mm-hmm. Now, you're still pretty much early days. I think you said the company got started in 2015. Um, you, you now have identified a lead program. You want to take that to the clinic in two to three years. You've raised a modest amount of capital. Do, do you think the, uh, the tools are there to uh, do drug discovery and early development in a really cost-efficient fashion? Because, I mean, this is like, the biggest bugaboo in the whole industry, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the time and cost is just exorbitant. It keeps going up all the time. Is the technology going to change that? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I mean, of course, it's still early days for the technology. I think the real the real uh, proof is in the pudding when some of these products start to reach the clinic. I think we'll have a real answer to that. But in general, I'm hopeful um, because of uh, a couple of tools that I think address a lot of uh, the main bottlenecks uh, in classical drug development. And I think a lot of the, the costs in current drug development are really attributed to the vast number of failures that companies see um, um, and the high failure rates. And I, those in my view, are attributed to uh, three things. The first is identification of poor targets, so tar- single targets that are weakly linked to human disease. The second is the use of preclinical models with poor translatability to the patient. And then the third is poor trial design. And where I see genomics, um, as well as uh, some of the other t- technologies in stem cell modeling, really making a difference is in uh, really making progress on all three of those fronts. So from the early R&D side, instead of looking at these single targets, we can now measure the effects of hundreds or thousands of genes, really, um, from real patient data from day one. And I think that is really important in neuroscience is that we're beginning with human data rather than uh, deferring using human data until we get into the clinic, which is the most costly portion, of course. Um, the second is that we can actually use this genomic data then to start thinking about de-risking our preclinical models. So what we've done at Verge is we've gone out and RNA sequenced every single commonly used rodent model as well as induced pluripotent stem cell model in the field. And we compare that to the human data to identify models that best capture the same changes we see in patient tissue. And importantly, an area I'm particularly excited about is then combining a lot of this genomics with uh, induced pluripotent stem cell technology. Um, So IPSC technology has enabled us to take uh, skin cells from living patients with disease and convert them into their own brain cells or neurons in a dish. And this has been revolutionary for neuroscience because for the first time, it actually allows us to model uh, uh, neurons or the CNS in a dish. And when we link that with all the patient data for our target identification, we can, for the first time, create an all-in-human approach to therapeutic development before we even enter the clinic. So I think neuroscience in particularly is a very exciting field to be combining with genomics and really making breakthroughs on on, uh, therapeutic development. Well, this seems like one of those areas where, um, you know, the all-in-human makes a lot of sense because, uh, you know, mice... They only live to be a couple years old. They don't naturally get Alzheimer's. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. 
And I think it's also um, where we can start thinking a bit more creatively about how we're using these rodent models, because at the end of the day, right, these rodent models, I think, still have, they're not totally useless, right? They still harbor a genetic mutation that's found in humans. I think the question is, what are we actually, what decisions are we making using those rodent models? So I think if we have a deep understanding of the mechanism of some of these therapeutics from studies like the genomic studies or the stem cell studies, we can actually use these rodent models to uh, study biomarkers, right? We can use them to study PKPD and systemic effects of the compound. Um, and I think actually the combination of all three of those are particularly powerful. Now, on a uh, personal note, um, starting a company, running a company is not easy. It's hard. <laughs> um, people tend to, uh, you know, lean on their their board of directors, their advisors, friends, family. Um, who who uh, are people out there helping you? Yeah, so we have a fantastic advisory board um, of um, both scientific advisors as well as strategic advisors. Um, and I think importantly, particularly our strategic advisors where I have less experience have been incredibly helpful in helping us think through, um, you know, the, the kind of unknowns, unknowns of uh, drug development, of business development uh, with these companies. But I have also found that the biotech community is just itself incredibly supportive. Um, I have found just a number of mentors, whether or not they're other CEOs of other companies, uh, scientists within some of the pharma companies we work with. Um, that are just uh, just happy and willing to uh, hop on a call and really talk through uh, challenges that I'm facing. And I think uh, uh, one of the biggest sources of support for me have been, you know, at the end of the day, the Y Combinator community, uh, because that is very much a community of other founder CEOs. And even though those companies are in very different sectors, um, I think you'd be surprised by the number of universal challenges that are shared um, by, by CEOs, including for me, a big thing has been how do I keep up my own personal growth so that it's uh, ahead of the growth of the, the company. And having a, a network of other founder CEOs has been uh, instrumental for that. What do you mean by personal growth? Um, so, for example, how can I continue? How do I think about, um, you know, in, uh, hiring? How do I think about enabling and empowering the people around me when I manage them um, uh, so that uh, I'm not, my, for example, micromanaging? How do I think about really expanding my own vision of the company, surrounding myself with the right people? I think it is always important for a CEO to be able to continue to maintain their own personal growth as a CEO, um, such that it never lapses behind the, the company's own growth. Yeah, well, and companies go through phases, right? I mean, when it was just you and, and your co-founder, I mean, you're doing everything. And now it's 14 people and you're not doing everything. You need to, keep, you're, it's small enough that you can certainly keep tabs on everything that's going on. And, and you know everybody in the company, but yeah, you have to delegate. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, as the company goes through different phases, really learning, no one person is going to be um, an expert at the science, an expert at the finances, and an expert at the drug development. So there's definitely a, a different set of skill sets you have to be hungry to learn. So on my end, it was uh, a learning about drug development. You know, admittedly, I haven't worked at a large pharma company, 
Um, but uh, it really, I gained a really deep understanding um, of a lot of the levers of drug development just through curiosity. But also when I went through the hiring process, I interviewed about 1,600 people, half of which were in the pharma industry itself. And experiences like that in and of themselves are huge eye-openers for, for understanding new sectors and um, new, new landscapes. Wait, how many people did you say you interviewed? 1,600 total. Wow. <laughs> when, when do you sleep? Yeah, that was the first first couple of years of the company um, where I just created probably the world's largest uh, funnel, job hiring funnel of um, all of the, I like to think that all of the computational biologists in the world probably have an email from me in their inbox. <laughs> Wow. Um, so that that's a sign of tenacity. I mean, there's entrepreneurs um, take risks. Um, your your dad, I mean, doing the day trading, he knows all about that. Um, but, you know, I think what some people forget is, you know, they take calculated risks. Um, you know, you, you sound like someone who knows what um, you know and you're good at and uh, – you work very, very hard and, and tenaciously to uh, learn those things that uh, you're still learning. Yeah, I mean, I, I think at the end of the day, this this was very much a company and a concept that was my, uh, I mean, it was my PhD subject. It's what I'm passionate about. And for me personally, not having, you know, uh, being a first time founder and a CEO, um, I view myself as having a lot more to prove, right? I need to prove out the science, prove out the the team, um, and I view it as very much building a foundation first. And so the team was the first foundation. But the biggest learning lesson for me is that relentlessness and persistence is so key to driving forward success, because I think there's just so many cycles when it seems like very difficult and things are never going your way. And it's always as a startup, it's always hard to hire. There's diff challenges with everything. It's not like working within a big company. But if you have the team that has the persistent and the passion, importantly, um, for actually driving therapeutics to patients, then I think that ultimately uh, gets you through 99.9% uh, .9 of challenges. And that's actually a question I asked during my uh, interview process. Yeah, you're uh, you're looking at people's you know, grit, I guess, is mm -hmm. one word that people use a lot. Um, I mean, looking at your background, you look like you've got this kind of, you know, golden pedigree. I mean, these great schools and I mean, you even got a Forbes 30 under 30, which, you know, um, tabs you for a lot of potential. Uh, and I, I, I remember seeing you at one of these conferences and I think you might have even worn a, a red power suit. <laughs> I mean, you just carry yourself with a lot of confidence. And, you know, I know most entrepreneurs, like they, they have those moments of like crippling self-doubt, um, you know, when, when, you know, people aren't looking. Uh, how do you like maintain that, that positive attitude and the, uh, um, the confidence? Yeah, well, I mean, I think um, the I I mean, uh, thank you, uh, f first of all, for for noticing my red power suit and also for for thinking that I'm very confident because I do in, in my own um, personal moments and everyone that knows me well um, do go through a lot of moments of crippling self-doubt. Um, 
I think uh, like what has helped me build up confidence is really at the end of the day, the company is so much more than just who I am. I think we've hired this incredible, I think the top thing, this this incredible world-class team of truly some of the best uh, computational biologists, drug discovery and uh, neurobiologists that I've ever worked with. And I have such confidence that no matter what challenges I throw in their way, they will figure out uh, the best solution for it. Um, I think that for us, we've also gained a lot more confidence as a company um, through a lot of the scientific validation that has uh, has come in the even just the last few months. I think the biggest sigh of relief for me uh, and was actually seeing that our drugs work in vivo, that they reverse ALS uh, in animal models as well as in cell models. Because I think for every computational company, you always have this question of, okay, it's all is well and great to predict uh, networks and to predict targets, but when you actually put them in a lab, are they going to show any biological effect? Um, I think so having the data there, the team there gives me a lot of confidence um, that I think the science is there, that the the company has a lot of promise and it's just a matter of how we execute. Well, the, the challenge is, as you say, I mean, it, it's always there in the biology. I mean, that that's, there's the risk. Um, and you gotta you gotta prove it in in the animals and then in the people. Yeah, but I still think on the flip side that is a really nice thing to working in science is that at the end of the day, you know, irregardless of who you are or what your prior experience is, you always have the data to point to objectively. And so that's been um, something that has been a great source of comfort for us is we can say, hey, look, uh, look at just what the data tells us about these targets. It's uh, unarguable. And uh, that also helps me build confidence over, over time. Well, the problems that you're addressing there with neurodegeneration and, uh, and, and down the road, neuropsychiatric conditions, you know, they're massively complicated, multifactorial mixture of genetics and environment. Um, you know, I, I think the, the approach that you describe here with, uh, um, you know, more rich granular input data from whether it's a transcriptome or something else combined with, you know, sophisticated analysis computationally on the back end. I mean, that seems like kind of the only way. Um, yeah. So I, I, I wish you uh, the best of luck. Alice Zhang, thanks for joining me on the Long Run Podcast. Thank you very much, Luke. It was my pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Music comes from D.A. Wallach. Thanks to Presage Biosciences and Harvard Medical School Executive Education for sponsoring. Next episode, Ethan Perlstein. He's not part of the Biotech VC Insiders Club, but he's charting his course in entrepreneurial drug discovery. Hear him describe this journey on the next episode. And thanks for listening to The Long Run. Tell your friends about it on your favorite podcast app or on social media. See you next episode. <laughs>